With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Therefore, he appointed Jesus as head of the church, which is his body. And just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ and us. So we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and mature in the body, putting off our old selves to be made new and clothing ourselves with the full armor of God. Each part does its work until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. And there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you. Uh, three weeks ago, I did a wrap on sex, and I've been in the timeout box for the last two weeks. So they let me out, and I'm going to try to do better today. Uh, it, is, it is good to have you. We're in this series, Unified, and, and I thought it would just be interesting just to think about the fact that uh, we're unified, not only in this room, but we're unified because there's two other groups that met in this room over this weekend, but we're unified with our congregation in Skagit uh, at the, at the uh, Cornwall campus in Skagit. It was so fun to be with them last week as well as the, the group in Belize and San Pedro at Hope Haven. Uh, they are continuing to grow. Last weekend, this was started five, six weeks ago, and they said, well, we're going to tune into Cornwall. Last Sunday, they had 31 people there, and they just like showed up, and so they're doing that. And, and we're getting to partner with a couple of churches that are without a pastor right now, uh, Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, Florida, as well as the Crossway Church in Auburn. So we're unified in that, and we're unified through technology, but we're unified in Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. There's one Lord, one faith one baptism, and that's our unity right there. Hey, I told you in June, while your kids were still in school, that we're going to embark on this journey and that we wouldn't get done until they're back in school, which they're back in school now, and we're still on this journey as we've been going through the book of Ephesians. And um, boy, the last couple of weeks has been like three weeks of uh, some pretty hard-hitting stuff. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Scott preached on marriage, and it was fantastic. If you weren't here, watch that online. And last week, Pastor Kip did an amazing uh, talk on the spiritual warfare. And of course, the three weeks ago, I did one on sex. So marriage, sex, and warfare, it's the story of some of your lives. But anyway, it's just uh, amazing how relevant the, the Bible is to our lives. And uh, there was a challenge that Pastor Kip gave us last week as he entered us into chapter six of, of this letter to the church in Ephesus. Um, and he gave us a challenge to memorize Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. So we're just going to one by one um, <laughs> see, see how, how you, he said, he, he said that, that it'd be a good thing for us to memorize, you know, uh, a verse every two days and we could do all that. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And what is so beautiful is that 
is that Kip pointed out, because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, we fight in this spiritual battle from a position of victory in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing. So today, if you've been following along, we get uh, towards the end of chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, on the far end of that, uh, we are going to be finishing up the letter here today. However, I will say this. Occasionally, I make a decision as the pastor of this church, and I don't consult with the elders or anyone else. And so I took that decision because we're going to revisit this next weekend because there was a couple of things that felt like they got left on the editing room floor that were just too important to pass up. So next week, I'm going to extend it one more week. And it's kind of like when a movie comes out on DVD and you get the deleted scenes. So next, next week is the bonus track, the, the stuff that... Okay, I'm excited about that. Some of you are going like, what are you talking about? I'm lost. I'll just show up next week. You'll figure it out. Okay, anyway, we're looking at this book. At the end of the the passage on spiritual warfare that Pastor Kip takes us to, Paul challenges and exhorts these people, the church in Ephesus and the churches, including us, to live a life of prayer. And the all-inclusive language that he uses when he says, pray in the Spirit, listen to this, on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers, for all the saints. He says, you ought to just be living, pray first, pray always, pray long, pray short. Prayers of praise, prayers of confession, prayers shouting out for help, praise glorifying God, thanking God, all these praying for other people. And he doesn't just exhort them and teach them to pray, he models this for them. In the letter twice, he shows them what it is that he prays for them. In chapter one, Pastor Scott preached on this uh, late June, I believe it was, when he prays for them that that they would have, that God would give to them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know him better. He prays that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened so that they would know the hope to which they had been called, the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the power for those who believe, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. What a powerful prayer. What if we prayed that prayer for each other? And then in chapter three, he comes back around. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, and I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Remember that whole thing where he says, I pray that you would have the power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. To know this love surpasses knowledge. You filled to the measure of the fullness of God. And he just prays that. And he shows them how he prays for them. And he exhorts them. Now I want you to pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers for all the saints. And then right at the very end, He says, could you pray for me as well? So Ephesians chapter six, verse 19, he says, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Two things really strike me about this. The first thing that strikes me is what he doesn't ask them to pray for. As some of you remember, he is in Rome in prison. He doesn't ask them to pray that he'll be released from prison. He doesn't ask them to pray that he'll get a speedy trial. He doesn't ask them to pray that he would have justice done on his behalf. He doesn't whine, he doesn't moan, he doesn't complain, it's not about him. He's praying as an ambassador of chains, like this is all of God's, he's gonna use me here. And he's praying that he can be bold with that. That's the second thing that strikes me. Because twice he prays that, Asked him to pray that he would be fearless. And I think, Paul? I mean, we're talking about Paul. You open up the dictionary to the word bold and it has his face there. 
This is the guy that goes before kings, before rulers, before angry mobs all over the world declaring the gospel. And this is kind of comforting to me that even the apostle Paul would say, there's times when I get a little bit intimidated by this whole thing and pray that I'd be bold. And he just prays, he says, would you pray that? And then on top of that, he follows it up and he says, hey, I'm, I'm sending uh, my friend to you, uh, Tychicus or Tychicus, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but I'm sending him to you and he's gonna give you an update on how I'm doing and what God's doing here. And the reason I'm sending him to you is that you would be encouraged. I'm thinking something's wrong with this picture. The guy's sitting in a foreign country in a prison and he's sending letters and sending people to encourage others. Usually when people are in prison, they say, would you write me letters and send something to encourage me? He's just the opposite, said, I'm here to encourage you. And then in the end of this, in this final salutation, he says this, peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of you who like little nuanced uh, subtleties in scripture, what's beautiful is in chapter one, verse two, he says, grace and peace, Father and the Son, grace and peace, and at the end, in the last uh, salutation, he says, peace and grace. Cool little bookends, how he starts off grace and peace, peace and grace. But then he talks about this, this love for our Lord Jesus Christ, and he qualifies it. He qualifies it at the very end of his letter. All who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Now, we do this sometimes around here when I'll tell you, we're going to have a quiz later in the sermon, and I'm going to give you the answer. We're doing that again today. The answer is an undying love. So two or three times today, I'm going to ask you a quiz, and the quiz will go like this. Hey, at the end of the letter, Paul writes, he says that we should love our Lord Jesus Christ with what? See, that's a practice quiz, but it's going to be the same question, the same quiz. You remember those words, you do that, you're golden, you'll get an A+. All right. So he does that. Now, now, what's interesting on this when he says this with an undying love is that he is reiterating the priority of love. This is a theme that he's had going throughout this letter, that you'd be rooted and established in love. You'd know the, how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ. You'd know this love that surpasses knowledge, that, that you'd be overwhelmed by this love of God. And then in response to that, what's he say in chapter five? He says that you would live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for that we would have this life that is lived out in love. And he's bringing that priority back around one last time. And he's just repeating what Jesus had said, the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is like is love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus would say a new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And what Paul is saying as he ends this letter with all that God has done for you, with the way that he has showered you with love that transcends your capacity to even understand. In response to that, love our Lord Jesus Christ with what? Okay, you're already fading. <laughs> An undying love, that's the answer. That will always be the answer today, okay? All right. N.T. Wright, uh, New Testament scholar, he said, this is basically what Christianity is all about. What being a Christian is about, all about. Loving Jesus with an undying love in response to his dying love for us. That Jesus would love us so much that he would die for us. And all of Christianity is understanding that, receiving that, and in response to that, loving him back with an undying love. And that's how Paul ends this letter. Love with an undying love. Now, 
That's the end of the letter, but not the end of this sermon, because that would not be good. Send you out that early? No. So I want us to look at some other stuff today as we come to the end of this letter. And what I want to uh, say is this, that in the next while, I'm going to connect some dots that some of you didn't even know the dots existed. So I'm going to make some dots, I guess, or point out some dots. I'm going to connect some dots in some ways that you, some of you will say, wow. And some of you say, I don't care, but this must be fun for Bob. And it is. <laughs> but I'm going to connect some dots. And there's a possibility that some of it could get a little bit confusing. So I hope you're well rested. Didn't stay up watching a Husky game or anything of that nature. I hope you're well caffeinated and ready. Are you ready to go today? So I'm going to need your best thinking because there's going to be stuff out of Ephesians that we're going to look at and out of Timothy and out of Acts and out of Revelation. And sometimes Paul will be speaking and sometimes Jesus will be speaking and sometimes John will be speaking and I might even get confused. So I need you to help me out with this. So here we go. We're going to jump into it. I'm going to give you some history, some church history, some Roman history, some church tradition, and even some church legend. And we're going to cover about 50 years. I've got it all written out here to kind of help keep it straight. Some of this is review. In the year 53 to 56, Paul goes to Ephesus. We talked about this in the first week of the series. You can read about it on your own. Acts chapter 18 through 20. He goes to Ephesus and there he plants a church. And he spends three years in Ephesus. Longer than he ever stayed anywhere unless he was in prison. But he stays there for three years and plants his church. He then leaves. Later, um, and you can read this in, uh, in like chapters uh, 24 through uh, somewhere in there in Acts, where he, he's on trial and he's in Caesarea Maritima and he says, I appeal to Caesar. And he says, since you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you'll go. So they ship him off to Rome. From 60 to 62, Paul is in Rome and he's in prison. You can specifically read that in Acts chapter 28. While he's in prison for those years, he writes letters. They're referred to as the prison epistles. One of them is the letter of Ephesians. Okay, I know that was a question that's not on the quiz. That was for free. All right, one of them is letter. He writes Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians. He writes Philemon. He writes these letters from prison. And then he gets released from prison. After that, he writes some letters to Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy. Somewhere between 63 and 66, he writes these letters. Timothy was like his, his young disciple. He was like a spiritual father to him. He poured his life into him. He appointed him as a pastor. So he writes these letters to Timothy. Another little side note. During this season is when Rome was on fire, 64, when uh, Her um, Nero blamed the fire of Rome on the Christians. That happens during this, this season. But Paul writes to young Timothy. In fact, in 1 Timothy, he writes, look at this, two screens. You with me? To Timothy, my true son in the faith, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Timothy had been with Paul in Ephesus. Paul leaves and he says, Timothy, I need you to stay here. We'll come back to that. What's also interesting, in 2 Timothy, Paul knows that his time is running out. That's in 2 Timothy is where Paul says, man, my life is being poured out like a drink offering. And I know that it's not long for this earth where he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Now there are weights in store for me, the crown of righteousness for, for all that. That's all there. He knows that his life is coming to an end. Now, with a little asterisk, somewhere in the year 67 or so, and this is where there's a little uncertainty, 
Paul is martyred. We don't know if he ever got to go back to Spain, we knew that, or go to Spain. I know that was his, his desire. He talks about that. But somewhere he's martyred. Most likely, he's beheaded by Nero in Rome, but we don't know that for sure. In that whole time, somewhere in the years between 65 and 70, John, not Paul, John of Peter, James, and John, of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, the sons of Thunder, John, who was one of the 12 disciples, John, who was probably the youngest disciple, John, the disciple whom the Lord loved, John, who wrote the book of John, John, who was at the Mount of Transfiguration, John, who was at the empty tomb, even though Peter ran faster than him to get there, John, who had written these words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, that John, okay, no, 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 no need, he's dead, don't clap for him. That John moves to Ephesus. Now, again, this is church tradition. You won't find that in the Bible, but it's church tradition. In fact, um, Irenaeus or Irenaeus, however you want to pronounce that, one of the early church fathers, said that John became the bishop of Ephesus. He had been a leader in Jerusalem, but he moves to Ephesus. While Jesus was hanging on the cross, Mary, his mother, was there. John is the only disciple that's there. And while Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks to John and he says, John, behold your mother. And he looks to Mary and says, behold your son. In essence, he says, take care of mom after I'm gone. Church legend says that when John goes to Ephesus, he takes Mary, the mother of Jesus, with them, and that she spent her last years in Ephesus and perished there in Ephesus. Now, that's not biblical, it's not biblical. This is church history and tradition. All right, so what are we talking about here? Let's take a look at a map. You have here Israel. Jerusalem's down here, you got the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. To go to Ephesus, they would sail here to this port city. This is the area that the Bible talks about as Asia. It's modern-day Turkey. And when they talk about Macedonia, it's up here and then Greece. So you have Athens and you have Corinth over here. So they're over here in Ephesus, and that's where John is. Interesting thing, in the year 70, there's the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And Judaism would never be the same again. That happened because of Titus, not Titus of the New Testament Titus, Titus of the, the Flavian dynasty from Rome, Titus who would about a decade later become the Roman emperor, destroys the temple in Jerusalem and people are scattered everywhere. From 81 to 96, Domitian is the emperor of the Roman Empire and Domitian is a tyrannical emperor. I, this is the first service I've said that right. All, all, three, all three services, I, I always think of like a T-Rex. Ah, tyrannical. He's this evil, wicked, horrible Roman emperor, not just to the Christians. The Christians, yes, he persecutes them, but to his own people. I mean, he was hated. During that season, John, who's at, at, at Ephesus, probably around the year 90 or so, who's an influential leader for Christ in Ephesus, which is a very important city, the flagship church, John is exiled to the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos is right off here, and it wasn't like a little vacation. Domitian says, you are gonna go to this island, you're gonna stay there, we wanna take away your influence. And so he's out there on this island in Patmos. To kind of put it in perspective, Patmos was an island of roughly 13 square miles. Lummi Island is roughly nine and a quarter square miles, so a little bit bigger than Lummi Island, and he's stuck out there. He's not allowed to leave. In fact, this is biblical because in Revelation chapter one, it says, I, John, not Paul, not Timothy, John, 
your brother and companion in the suffering of the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Not on behalf of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Not, as Paul would say, as an ambassador of the word of God. He said, I wasn't there to proclaim the gospel. I was there because I proclaimed the gospel, because I taught the word of God, because I lifted up the name of Jesus, I was banished to this island of Patmos. While he's on this island, at roughly the year 95, he has this amazing vision and Jesus appears to him. And Jesus says, I want you to write this vision down. And he writes this vision down, and this vision that he has makes its way into our scripture, into our Bible, and it's called the book of Revelation. Revelation. Not z. <laughs> Little pastoral pet peeve. The book of Revelation. <laughs> uh. Not Revelations. What book? Oh, you evil, wicked people. I heard that hiss, the hiss of Satan, revelations. All right, I'm trying to make this sermon shorter and you're not helping me. So he writes the book, he writes down this vision, it's the book of Revelation. Now, again, church history and tradition would say that in 96, when Domitian, who exiled him, banished him to Patmos, when, when Domitian dies, that John returns to Ephesus for his dying days, the last four or five years of his life. He's in his 90s, this old man, loves God, loves Jesus, loves the church in Ephesus, and there he dies. Okay, there's our starting point. No more yawning, I saw that. Okay, so he writes this book uh, of Revelation. In this, he says this in Revelation chapter one. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace, there's that again, to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. I love this. Because John knows who he's talking about. John spent three years with Jesus. John was on the Mount of Transfiguration when Elijah and Moses showed up. John was at the empty tomb. John was there when Jesus ascended to the Father. John, the, the big church word is immutable. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. This is the one we're talking about. Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Jesus says, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Back to the map. These are the seven churches of Asia. And this is who Jesus said, uh, in each of these cities, send this letter. Now, the, the order of them is probably, if you were gonna journey to these, like a circular letter might, like the letter of, of Ephesians probably did, is that you would probably go in that it's just kind of a natural progression. And in this, Jesus says, I have a letter for each of these churches, and I want you to take them to these churches. And he starts with Ephesus. Now, why? Maybe because it's the port city, it's the first one, that would be, makes sense. Maybe it's because of its prominence and it's important. That would make sense as well. But Jesus sends these letters, and these letters are like Jesus' evaluation. It's kind of his state of the church address to each of these churches. And he starts off the first one with this church in Ephesus, the, the, the church that we've been looking at and studying over the course of this summer. Now, what's interesting is, this is not the first time this church has received a letter, is it? They received a letter 30 years earlier from the Apostle Paul. And now... At the end of that letter, 
Paul says, giving you time to think right now, that you ought to love the Lord, our, our Lord uh, Jesus Christ with undying love. Perfect. Now they're getting a letter, not from Paul, from Jesus. And could you imagine? I, I mean, I just I think about this. If somehow someone were to say, like with authority, hey, Bob, uh, coming to Bellingham, I've got a letter for you in Cornwall Church from Jesus. I mean, there's part of it that'd be like, cool, and there's part of it would be like, oh, no. <laughs> because it's like an evaluation. It's like a review on how you're doing. It's like, oh, we're trying. We're, we're really honestly serious. I mean, there would be a, a little bit unsettled with like what's going to be in this letter. I mean, I go for an annual review before our board, and I even like them, and most of them like me. But even that's a little unsettling. But to, be, but to have this letter from Jesus, and he sends them this letter. And this is how it starts off. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now we're already lost. You know, I mean, the book of Revelation is full of all this imagery and stuff. And there will come a day when we'll go through the, the book of Revelation, maybe for a summer or a few, but not today. But in this, he says, these are the, the words of him, Jesus, who holds the seven stars. To the angel... Now, angel, the word literally is messenger. It could be the angel like you're thinking a messenger from the Lord, which by the way, there's not one verse in the Bible that puts wings on angels, just in case you were wondering about that. So all these little flappy things you see, not biblical. All right, that has nothing to do with this sermon. But this could have been one of these angels that shows up. Or it could have been a messenger. This word was used for John the Baptist as a messenger. But most likely, it was this angel, this divine being from God. As far as the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands, he's straightforward later. He says, the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. They're the ones that are bringing light into the darkness. So that, he's really clear about that. But the seven stars that he holds in his hand, it could have been the angel of each of the churches. It could have been the pastor of each of the churches. It could have been the bishop of each of the churches. But what he makes clear is that it's Jesus who holds these leaders in his hand. It's Jesus who walks through the church. The church in Ephesus had an excellent history of great spiritual leaders. I mean, think about it. The apostle Paul is the founding pastor of this church. That's a good pastor to start off with. Not only the apostle Paul, but Priscilla and Aquila, the great couple from Rome, they had been a part of the church in Ephesus in leadership. Apollos, he had been a part of the leadership. Timothy, he had been the pastor of the church. A guy named Tychicus, another one named Trophimus. Uh, and now John has spent years as being, I mean, they've had some incredible leaders. But John had been there. He had been there at Caesarea Philippi where Jesus said, I will build my church. And he knew that this wasn't Paul's church, it wasn't Timothy's church, it wasn't even his church. He loved them, he shepherded them, but this was the church of Jesus. Jesus is the one who holds the leaders in his hands. Jesus is the one who walks through. It's his church. And he says, and this is what I want you to say to this church. And he says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Right out of the gate, he commends them because of their deeds, because of this, this labor that they've done in the Lord, their diligent labor. And he says, I've seen for 40 years, I've seen the things that you've done. You're not a lazy church. You're not willing to just sit back and observe. This isn't about entertainment. You're out there doing the hard work and you've persevered. 
It hasn't been easy and it hasn't been short. It's been 40 decades and I've watched what you've done. And I commend you for that. You know, we talk about being a go and be church. Uh, where, where we go and be the hands and feet of Christ, where we bring the kingdom to bear in our world, where we help out like with the school districts and, and the, the local organizations and, and, and blessing others and nationally and internationally. This was a go and be church. When I think about this, I think about those words where Paul says to the church in Corinth, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And Jesus is saying to them, you have labored for me for 40 years and it has not been in vain. Or in Galatians 6, where I think it's Galatians 6, where he says, do not grow weary in well-doing for you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. They have continued on and he just commends them. I'm telling you what, if I got a letter from Jesus and the first thing he said was, man, Cornwall is doing great. The deeds that you're doing, you're advancing the kingdom, you're laboring, you're persevering, and I see all that you're doing. I'm like, that's good. He says, but that's not all. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Again, he, he commends them here because of their sincere belief, because of their uh, intolerance for bad theology. There, here's this young church in a culture that is so pagan and so far from what God would have that there's so many cultural influences that could take it off course. And there's people that come into the church, people that come in that try to steer them away from the truth. And he says, you've not given into that. For 40 years in the midst of a culture that is filled with, with hedonism and, and all the pagan practices, you have stayed true to my word. And Paul knew that this was gonna be an issue. Because I think Paul dealt with it when he planted this church. Because 40 years earlier, when he's getting ready to leave, in Acts chapter 20, 40 years earlier, he says to them these words, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Paul says, I understand the culture you live in and I understand the way people are gonna come in and try to infiltrate the church and I understand because I dealt with it and I'm telling you, they're gonna destroy the flock. You be aware that he warns them and with tears day and night, it's like this loving parent that wants the best for their child that they love so much. This might be a horrible illustration but if you're a, a parent with, a, with a, a ninth grade girl and you go to high school orientation and you walk her in and she's your little sweet girl that you've tried to protect and she's innocent and you look over on the wall and there's all the junior and senior guys, the wolves. And there's this part of you that just wants to protect her, like watch out for those evil men. And you send your son off to the military and you know the temptations he's gonna face. You know when all the guys go off base, you know what's gonna happen and you wanna just warn him. And he says, I love you church and I have tried to protect you but I'm gonna leave and I know what's gonna happen. And remember he left Timothy? Remember he said, I'm leaving Timothy in Ephesus? There was a reason, there was a very strategic intentional reason why he did that 
When he says to Timothy, I urge you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in, in, in Ephesus, here's why, so that you may command certain men. And I think he had some specific guys in mind. I think there were guys that he had to deal with. I think that there were guys that he and Timothy had talked about. So instead of dropping the names, he just says, you know who I'm talking about, Tim. You know those guys. You know which ones I'm talking about. That you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. They've been doing this for years. And endless genealogies. Uh, devote themselves to myths and English genealogies. They promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. He says, no, no, Timothy, you're there. You've got to guard the flock. Watch the doctrine. Keep the theology pure. Stay to the word of God and God's ways. There's cultural influences, and there are going to be these wolves that come from the inside, and they're going to try to keep people to, from going the right way and pull them astray. In 2 Timothy, when he writes in the second letter, he says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. And then look at this. With great patience and careful instruction. You know what I love about that? That's another way of saying grace and truth. And the Bible says when Jesus came, he came full of grace and truth. And when we teach God's word, it needs to be full of grace and truth. And he says, encourage them with grace, great patience, and careful instruction with truth. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Has that time come yet? Isn't that the human condition? Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Can I push pause here for just a second? As your pastor with the Lord as my witness and the power of the Holy Spirit, as long as God allows me to be this pastor, this church will always be firmly based on nothing except the word of God. That is what we have to hold true to, especially in our culture where there's so much relativism and even in the church, we will hold it. Listen, I know Cornwall's not perfect. I mean, look at your pastor. Far, far from perfect. If Cornwall's not for you, find a church that is, but find a church that is firmly founded on the word of God and does not stray from that. There are some great churches in our county that teach the word of God. And if you're not gonna be a part of Cornwall, get into one where it teaches the word of God. There's another thing that he says to this church in Ephesus in, in uh, Revelation 2. We don't have time to go into it deeply. You can read it on your own, verse seven, I think. He says, there's something else, Ephesus, there's something else that you have going in your favor. He says, you hate the practices of, of the Nicolaitans. And there's a lot of question. What, who were the Nicolaitans? What were their practices? Some of them talk about uh, the Balaamites and what have you. It, it's, it's not certain who the Nicolaitans were, but they were an evil group of people that were taking God's word and twisting it. Most believe they were a group that said, we have grace, therefore we have license. Because your sins have already been forgiven, go for it. It doesn't matter, they're already been paid for. Jesus has already been crucified. The, the, the debt's already been paid. So sin up a storm, especially in the area of sexual immorality. And he says, you cannot tolerate the Nicolaitans. You hate their practices because you have kept your doctrines pure. And then he goes on and says this. And you have persevered and have endured hardship for my name 
and have not grown weary. Second time he talks about perseverance. The first time they persevere in their hard work, what they are doing. This time they're persevering in their hardships, what's being done to them, the persecution they're experiencing. And it's not just because it's a, a tough world. They're being persecuted specifically for my name, Be, precisely because they're followers after Jesus and they have not grown weary. They've continued for 40 years. And he just commends them again for this, this un, un, uh, unwavering endurance in their life. Like there's been hardships and there's been persecutions and there's been pressures and it would have been a lot easier to cave, but you continue on. Uh, there, there's a word that I love that I, I'm not smart enough to use it in everyday conversation like if I use this word in a conversation, anyone who heard me using this word would look at me and say, he just found that big word and he just wants to use it. And that would be true. <laughs> the word is, it's a, it's a cool, cool word. I've never actually used it without giving it this kind of preface. The word is indefatigable. Say that with me, indefatigable. Okay, let's try this again. Indefatigable. That's a cool word. If you really break it down, it's like indefatigable. Indefatigable is like, you just don't know when to stop. It's like you never wear out. It's like the Energizer Bunny. And these people are indefatigable. They, they just, see, I just get this big old smile. I said it, right? Okay, they just, they just continue to persevere even in the hardships. And they endure and they go on and on without ever stopping. They just continue on in the midst of all of that. And, and and it's not like they're just like this resignation to, yeah, life's hard. But there's this courageous, gallant, kind of a invincible attitude. We have Christ. And John recognizes this. I mean, he's in like solidarity with them on this. Because he wrote this in, in Revelation. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering. I'm in prison. I know the, the suffering. Paul knew the suffering. We get this. Companion in the suffering and the kingdom. And this is a pretty impressive church. Don't you think? I mean, this is the words from Jesus. He says, hey, listen, for 40 years, for 40 years, you have worked for the kingdom. You've done the hard work. For 40 years, you have kept the doctrine pure. Your theology is strong. You're living on the word of God. For 40 years, you've endured hardships, heartaches, difficulties, and you've stayed standing. You're steadfast. Man, I would love to hear that report card for us 40 years from now. In the year, how great would that be in the year 2059? I'm up here with three strands of hair and a ponytail. We get a report card from Jesus that says, for the last 40 years, you guys have remained faithful. You've remained steadfast. There's been persecution, but your theology and your doctrine is pure. You're on the word of God and you've done the work of God and you've brought the kingdom to bear. What's not to like about that? What a church. Wow. And then there's verse four. Yet I hold this against you. And Stop and think about how strong of a statement this is. Part of what makes it so incredibly strong is that this isn't from Paul. 
It's not from John. It's not from Timothy. This is from Jesus. He says, you guys have been amazing for 40 years, but I hold, not a, here's a suggestion you might want to tweak. Here's an area that could use some improvement. Hey, I just want to point something out you may not be aware of. If, if you could maybe over the next 40 years give some attention to this. He says, I hold this against you. Strong, strong statement. Hey, let's have a quiz. Paul writes this letter. And at the very end of the letter, he gives them this exhortation that they ought to, ought to love the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ with A+. Plus. Jesus writes them a letter and says, 40 years later, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You've forsaken your first love. Your deeds are right. Your doctrine is solid. Your determination is steadfast. But where's the devotion? It's just become a duty to you. It's just drudgery. You've forsaken your first love. Oh, your, your hands are about the right thing. Your head is engaged well. Your feet are strong. But what about your heart? It's shriveled up. Now think about those words when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, that famous wedding chapter. <laughs> if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. He says, church, for 40 years, you've done good stuff, you've done the right things, you've believed the right things, you've stood strong, but your heart has shriveled up. You've forsaken your first love. This is something that the church always deals with. In the Old Testament, God's people were always dealing with this. In fact, there was a time, and God speaks in through Jeremiah, and says, go proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. I love the imagery. Here's this young bride and she loves her new husband and he's got nothing but dreams. And she believes in him and he says, let's go. We're gonna make an incredible life and there's nothing but a desert and nothing's planted. But she goes with this devotion. Says, what about that kind of a love? Some of you uh, are familiar with The Fiddler on the Roof. And that scene, I promise you I won't sing this. But that scene where, where Tevye is talking to, to Golda and he says, do you love me? And she says, do I what? He says, do you love me? Do I love you? With our daughters getting married and this trouble in the town, you're upset, you're worn out, go inside, go lay down. Maybe it's indigestion. Golda, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? You're a fool. I know, but do you love me? Do I love you? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meal, cleaned your house, given you children, milked your cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? 
He says, our parents said we would fall in love, and now I'm asking Golda, do you love me? I'm your wife. I know, but do you love me? Do I love him? Well, for 25 years, I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years, my bed is his. Jesus says, Ephesus, for 40 years, you have brought the kingdom to bear. You've taught right doctrine. You've stood steadfast, but do you love me? You've forsaken your first love. And this is what I love about Jesus, is that he doesn't want them to grovel and live in shame and guilt. He says, let me tell you how we can get this back on track. And immediately he says, here, this is what we need to do. And he gives them this beautiful little three-step program to get them back on the right track. He says this, remember the height from which you have fallen. First thing, just remember, he says. Remember where you were. Remember how it was. Remember back when you realized that you had been adopted into the family. Remember when you realized that you had gone from darkness to light, from death to life in Christ. You remember those things. Remember how your heart was overwhelmed with the mystery of this indescribable grace of God and his love. Remember back that in those times. And don't just remember as like, oh yeah, those were the good old days in nostalgia. When you remember the height from which you've fallen, then he says, repent, just repent, turn. Don't say, oh yeah, those were good days. He says, turn from the way it is now, turn to the way it was and the way it will be again. To own it, don't excuse it, don't justify it, own it and then repent of it. And don't just have this be something in your mind where you say, I'm sorry. Remember, Paul had written to them in Ephesians 4, I think 23, where he says, be transformed, be renewed in the attitude, be made new in the attitudes of your mind, but don't stop there. In Matthew 3, it says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That in this decision to repent, that there will be something that shows for that, an outcome that's different. And he says, repent and do the things you did at first. Repeat. Back when you first discovered the goodness of God, when you began to understand, when you were filled to the measure of the fullness of God, those things, how you couldn't get enough of the word of God, how you worshiped with a heart that was overflowing with gratitude, how you quickly repented of sins, how you lived and kept in step with the Holy Spirit, do those things again. Rekindle that first love again. Bring it to life. And Paul had said to them in Ephesians 5, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God to live your life that way, like you did at first. So at the end of this letter that Paul writes them, he says, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And one more little piece of church legend. It's been reported that in the last four or five years of John's life, in his 90s, he goes back to Ephesus. And if you've ever read 1 John, you understand this. He goes back to Ephesus. And when he would be in the gathering with the church and with the people, this old man had one line he would repeat over and over and over again. He would say, little children, Little children, love, love one another. 
Little children, love. Live this life of love, then unfailing love. Because the last, last word of this letter, the last word of Jesus, the last word for us is love. Love. And I wonder, what if Jesus wrote us a letter as a church? I think we'd do pretty good in the go and be aspect, things we're doing trying to bring the kingdom to bear in this world. I think we'd do really good on the doctrine thing. I think we'd do good because we haven't really faced a whole lot of persecution. But what would he say to us about our first love? How much of it has just become routine for us? How much of it is just duty? How much of it is just, well, that's what we do? As opposed to doing it from a heart passionately devoted to our Savior. What if Jesus wrote you and I individual letters? How would we do in that same criteria? Because we are God's workmanship created for good works, which he's prepared in advance for us to do. How are we doing with that? How are we doing with our stance, our convictions, our belief, our doctrine? Are we being swayed by the culture? Are we being swayed by what makes our ears feel good? Or are we holding to God's word and letting that be our guiding line? How are we doing with any kind of persecution we may face? And most importantly, what's the condition of our heart? How is our first love?